Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are continuing our journey through the Gospels. This is Gospels Part 37. We are continuing our kind of mini-series through the Sermon on the Mount. And last week we had some big discussions about what the goal of the law and the prophets were in Jesus' eyes, that his purpose was not to come to abolish them or to end them, but to actually uphold them and to show what the true meaning of those commandments were that God had originally given to his people on Sinai. And and then he kind of started going into the actual meat of what the goal of those commandments were in examples like how the obedience to those commandments starts within the heart and that an example like committing murder actually can stem all the way back to your problems with anger and how those things build off of one another that lead to something as egregious like murder and how God wants you to take care of the matters of the heart in order to fulfill the commandment uh, with obedience with the spirit and the letter of the law. And we're going to continue that theme this week as well as he dives into even more examples. Oh, yeah. And you know what? Really, really, really important verse. I don't know if you remember why Jesus is even going into this whole big spiel. Back in verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's when this whole thing starts. So he's explaining how it is that your righteousness can exceed the scribes and Pharisees. So it's Mm -hmm. it's awesome. All right, you ready? Let's do it. Matthew chapter 5, starting verse 23. Here we go. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there, before the altar, and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. All right. Now, this is probably important, especially since we've taken a break. We're like in between two podcasts. We need to understand what I just read here uh, as connected to Jesus's interpretation of the commandment, you know, the whole thing about anger versus murder. And these, uh, instead of thinking of these as if they're somehow separate thoughts, these are more like illustrations of whatever his initial point is. And his point, although it's important about anger, whatever, but the the real message here is that we, as those who, who want to be a part of the kingdom, who want to live even now, we could say, as a part of the kingdom— we should be choosing peace and reconciliation over anger or even murder, right? And so, 
what is it that he's trying to say here? (laughs) This is so good. First of all, it says, offering your gift at the altar. Samuel, does this mean that you are up in front of the church and you're whipping out a 20, ready to throw it in the little bowl? (laughs) Yeah, with my papyrus leave uh, monetary bills. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay, if you have any vision in your head of a modern church and, you know, like the stage in front as being the altar or a gift being something like money or something, you are totally on the wrong page of this book. Come on, son. Come on, son. That's right. You've got to, you've got to put yourself back in the first century. You are standing in the temple and you are ready to sacrifice an animal. I mean, you literally have the knife in your hand kind of thing ready to sacrifice, okay? You're trying to draw near to God. It's it's such an important picture. That's the altar. It's the altar on which they're going to sprinkle the blood and, you know, actually cook or burn the sacrifice, whatever it is you're doing. And side note, Samuel, when you hear this, do you kind of get the sense that Jesus is thinking that all of this whole sacrifice and temple and everything is going away? No, in verse 24, he says, and then come back and offer your gift. Exactly. Yeah, it's just an interesting side note. Jesus is living in a world where it's normal, and he's good with it. He's going with it. Seems seems as if it perpetuating is not a problem. Anyway, so there's that. That's the first thing, gift at the altar. Second thing, your brother has something against you. All right. In a way, this is like the perfect time to be doing this podcast. In America, 2021, everybody's offended at everything all the time, right? So when it says your brother has something against you, Samuel, does your brother, is he like the ultimate decider and chooser of whether you you owe him some sort of Apology, reconciliation, this, that, whatever. Is, is it all up to him? I wouldn't think so. It's kind of a two-way street, right? Yeah, it, it has to be. There has to be within this some sort of legitimate complaint. Now, notice even the, the, the second illustration, the parable that follows, it's, it's about a court and a judge, So you would even think that these would be things that even some sort of impartial third party, they could view from the outside and they would go, yeah, yeah, there's some sort of fault or injury or offense there. Now, this isn't to say that we're not concerned about, and I don't mean to minimize, but, you know, something maybe a little smaller like hurt feelings or or any kind of other problem that, you know, you don't require courts and judges for, those kind of things are extremely important. But are they all? Well, no. Sometimes they can just be frivolous, right? Some people, I mean, they they really, they're just offended for no reason. It's like there's nothing you can do. And even if you did try to make it better, you couldn't. I mean, we've probably all experienced that somehow, somewhere. When your brother has something against you, we should be trying to, to, trying to understand it as a legitimate complaint. And that just means that we, there, there's some responsibility on this. We got to try to be level-headed in our uh, assessment of the situation, right? And, you know, give people the benefit of the doubt. 
if, if you think there's a chance, say, you know what, maybe I was in the wrong. Well, then, by all means, make it right. Uh, what's another thing? Oh, leave your gift. Okay, so we already told you you were at the altar with your gift. It's an animal. You're ready to sacrifice the whole thing, right? And now you're supposed to just leave it. Just try and just imagine this. Put yourself in their shoes. Actually being in this situation, you're at the altar, ready to slice an animal's throat, and you're supposed to just stop. Leave. I mean, what happens? What happens? I mean, the whole situation is crazy, but you've got to go make things right with your brother. And only after you've done that can you come back and continue. So can you see how important this issue is? Yeah, and those those sacrifices cost those people something. It wasn't a like if people just had an animal laying around here and there, like they <laughs> they had to sacrifice part of part or if not a lot of their wages in order to bring this offering to God. It, exactly. So you're kind of like leaving money like at the altar like anybody could take it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm sure there's, you know, certainly the, maybe the priests are watching over, taking care. I don't know, whatever. But this is a really big deal. It's that important to go make things right with your brother. And then think about it. Why you'd bring the sacrifice? Because you want to draw near to God. Well, to be near to God, you can't be having messed up relationships. There's a lesson for all of us, huh? Mm. Yeah. But whatever, it just, if, you're, if you're really trying to put yourself in the situation, thinking of it in your mind, this is a really big ask. But continuing the theme, this is the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And now this whole idea about being reconciled, first be reconciled, I got to say, and we've said it a number of times, and I hope people are catching on, this teaching isn't really new. This this is very much in line with the way that Israel was supposed to operate the sacrificial system from the very beginning. You were supposed to confess and repent and make reconciliation and or restitution. And only then were you to bring your sacrifice so that you could once again draw near to God. And so... Jesus, it's not like he's making up new stuff. He's, he's bringing people back to the way things are supposed to be. And, oh, another side note. Did you notice in all that little bit that I was talking about there, God isn't really in the business of forgiving sins that you've committed against another person. That's between you and that person in this life. Now, like side note to the side note... <laughs> Woe to you if it isn't settled in this life and God does actually have to jump in and settle it later, right? But I'm just saying, there's a difference. There is sin that we commit against God and that God must forgive uh, like it's in his purview, but there's also sin from one man to another. And and it's, it's, it's important that we see that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, come to terms. He, uh, th- this was the, the second illustration. So the first illustration is about leaving your gift, making everything right. The second one is coming to terms quickly with your accuser on the way to court. And so it says, come to terms. When you've wronged someone else, 
this illustration, it's, it's, it's as if you have accrued a debt. And so you are the debtor and you have to seek to settle that debt. Now, I don't know if anybody listening has ever been in a situation where they owed the IRS money or they knew someone else who owed the IRS money or whatever. Just saying, right now at this point, lucky me, I've never been that guy. But here's the thing. People go to the government, the IRS, and they say, hey, I know I owe you, you know, like $50,000 or something, but I don't have it. You can't get blood from a turnip. How about you make me an offer? Give me something else. And the IRS will come back and go, okay, well, here's the thing. You give us, you know, $5,000 now, pay us, you know, $5,000 a year over the next four years, and we'll call it even. You know, sort of like having your debt and spreading it out over time, and you get to go back to being normal or something. That's what we're talking about here. Settle that debt. And hopefully, if you try to do it, you, you can avoid the, like, the appropriate outcome, the deserved outcome, and and hopefully you can receive mercy. But if you don't, if you don't even try, well then, again, illustratively, you're going to be imprisoned. I'm doing air quotes here. Until you pay, there's more air quotes, the very last cent. And see, the thing that's so funny about this, and this is a human thing, I'm not picking on anybody particular because we all do it, but it's funny because paying the actual penalty that you deserve is almost always way worse than whatever the personal cost would be if you went about attempting to avoid it by, you know, reconciliation or seeking mercy or whatever it is you could do to come to terms with your accuser. And yet people so often, they're always choosing not to do that. It's like a pride thing or something. I don't know what it is, but that's what they do. Well, yeah, you and I, Paul, just learned, like we talked about it in another group just last night, that potentially in the Beatitude section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus may have implanted a chiasm with a treasure, with the center of it being verse 6 and 7 of chapter 5, with it saying that, those who want to like have a displacement of hungering and pursuing righteousness and how that's connected with showing mercy to other people yeah. and how hard that is for so much of humanity that if you want to experience righteousness, that's going to come directly with how you give and receive mercy to one another. Yeah, yeah, it's... I don't know. These are just, they're amazing images. All of these things that Jesus is talking about, they're so good. It, it makes it so real if you'll just kind of let it. Uh, now, something that we can't really relate to, uh, this idea of debtor's prison, we, we don't really have that today, especially not like they had then. But it's important also to note, they weren't a Jewish thing. The whole idea of debtor's prison, this all came with the Romans. But Again, if you're trying to put yourself back in Jesus' shoes or that day, that time, this is a very practical, real-life picture. And, and I would say a true picture of our debt with God, or you, you might even think of our debt with others. And we should pursue settling with him or settling with them with the same fervor that we might apply to trying to stay out of prison, 
if you really understood what debtor's prison was like. And just so you know, in a first century debtor's prison, uh, usually the only way you get out is by dying. And so if you had that image in your head and you were using the same fervor to avoid that and, and applying it toward not having other people have something against you or what, it's, that's a, that's a cool picture. Paul might have a modern equivalent of debtor's prison that Uh-oh. we could use. Bring it on. Uh, this is being applied to people who are conscientious of what student loans do to your life if you're, <laughs> if you're borrowing money to go to college. But if, you, if people have experienced that fervor of what it's like to try to so hard to pay off your student loan debt after you graduate college you should apply that fervor to settling like your relational debts that you have with your fellow man yeah oh that's good and i mean i don't know maybe i'm gonna say something mean but samuel you might just be the odd man out because i'm not sure that a whole bunch of people are even trying to pay off their student loans yeah i think they just yeah i don't know but if we instituted debtor's prison, I bet they would. I'm just saying. <laughs> be a lot less people in colleges. <laughs> That's true. That's true. All right. Let's see. What do we got next? Uh, this is Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 27, 28. Here we go. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So now we have Jesus equating lustful intent with adultery. And I'm sure everybody's, you know, they're hearing it. This example's very much like the whole anger is equal to murder teaching, right? And interestingly, Samuel, what is the penalty for murder? Uh, death. What is the penalty for adultery? The same, death. Yeah, yeah. And this this is a big deal. Jesus took two really big sins, and oh, I'm sorry, by the way, have you ever heard anybody say all sins are the same? I, I have heard that statement before. Yeah. Now, okay, there is a sense in which we know what they're saying. If you break even one little bit of the law, you've broken the whole law, that kind of, so yeah, okay, I I get that. But seriously, are all sins resulting in the death penalty? I don't think so. Of course not. No. And so therefore, guess what? Some sins are worse than others. That's all I'm saying. But anyway, let's get back to the thing. So we see again here. It's like an inner secret thing. First it was anger, and now it's lustful intent, but it has the potential to lead to catastrophe if it's not stopped early. And in both of these examples, whether it's murder or adultery, think of how easily one might claim, oh, perfect adherence to the letter of the law. But seeing what Jesus is teaching, you see how far they could still be from the law's true intent and goal. It's a big deal. 
Uh, here's here's a, another way of, th- this one actually kind of relates uh, very well. Let's go to the book of James, chapter 1, verse 15. Why don't you read that one, Samuel? Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Yeah. So when James says desire does this, and when Jesus says lustful intent, that word lust, that word desire, it's the same Greek word. Hmm. So these are really, really close. But you see it. Once it's conceived, it's going to grow and it's going to grow and it's going to grow. And then uh, this is also important. Note in both of these cases, Samuel, is Jesus actually suggesting that we are going to, in some way, start enforcing the laws differently in the courts, Jewish courts or any other court? I didn't get that vibe. No, it's, and it's important that we see it. Nobody's actually going to give the death penalty to someone else for getting angry or for adultery, right? This should, in some sense, have us thinking more toward judgment by God as opposed to like the legal courts. But even in that, we just have to be careful not to take it too far because people do that, whatever. But anyway, this thing, you shall not commit adultery. First of all, uh, we don't even have to go read these because whatever we know. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 18, that's going through the Ten Commandments. You know it. There you go. But we, modern day, we usually think of adultery as just you know, kind of a kind of a broad definition. It's any married person engaging in any consensual uh, consensual sexual relations with someone other than their spouse. And I, I mean, generally, that's a good definition, true. Mm-hmm. But here in the Bible, here in what we're reading, it's a little bit different. When we're talking about adultery, uh, please remember this is a primarily patriarchal culture and you know, more so than wherever you're living now today. And a more precise image would be something more along the lines of sexual relations between a married or betrothed woman and anyone other than her husband. The reason I point that out is because Jesus, he specifically says, everyone who looks at A woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is sneaking in this awesome statement, right? It's super impactful because it's not just addressing the heart issue of lust, which we're talking about, but it's also bringing the man and his responsibility to the forefront. That's wild. I have never heard that before. Yeah, and it's how easy is it to read right by that? It's, I mean, I'm prime example right here. <laughs> he's feeling it. He's living it live online. Yeah, it's a crazy thing. But in both of these interpretations, whether we're talking about the murder one or the adultery one, Jesus is doing, you're going to love this part, Samuel. He's doing the consummate Jewish thing. Do you want to say it out loud, Samuel? It, it would tickle my fancy. Do it, do it. He's he's building a fence around the Torah. Yeah. Now, when you hear that, you may get a picture in your mind, and you may be absolutely right. But just in case it's not working for you, we're going to try to explain this a little bit. Um, Samuel, when you grew up, you were kind of in a rural area, true? 
Mm-hmm. Did you ever run out of gas? <laughs> You're asking the wrong person. <laughs> Why is that? I, I constantly still drive with the empty gas light on oh, my no. truck. Oh, you're going to ruin my example. No, I'm kidding. Well, here's <laughs> the thing. Let's let's do this. You and I then are very different people because I ran out of gas a grand total of how many times, Samuel? Zero. No. One. One. One time. I also grew up in an area that, you know, it was kind of rural. I mean, there were lots of little towns, but there was some space in between, whatever. It is the most ridiculously painful thing to go through trying to remedy the situation. And remember, when I grew up, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have, I mean, we had nothing, right? It was, it was such a supreme pain in the butt that it happened one time and I made the decision, I'm never going to let that gas gauge drop below a quarter tank. I'm just not doing it. So that was me putting a fence around that dangerous or unsavory situation. Do you see it? Mm -hmm. They put a fence around the rules, the laws, the instructions in the Torah so that it was safer, right? And that's what Jesus is doing. He said, look, yeah, don't murder, but you know what? Don't even be angry. Yeah, don't commit it. Guess what? Don't even have lust, right? Like run from it, whatever. Here's another one. Just imagine, Samuel, what if all these instructions in the Torah, what if they were all a little black hole, each one of them? What would you do for that black hole or or because of that black hole? What would you do? I'd try not to get super close to. (laughs) Right. You would avoid it because you don't want to get sucked in. Right. That's exactly what's going on here. Right. And we've got many examples in Jewish writings of all of this stuff going on. I know you talked about it in a a previous podcast about Adam, you know, sort of building the fence around Torah for Eve, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, The point is, even what we're seeing here, what Jesus is talking about, it's unlikely that any of this was new when Jesus said it. He's just, he's repeating things that people should have already heard and known. And I just think it's cool. Hmm. That's good. Yeah. Anything? No, I mean, I just, I'm soaking it in. I'm sorry I messed up your gas tank analogy. No, (laughs) you didn't. It's good. All right. So, uh, and the thing is, we joke around too much. We got to be careful because somebody might get their eye poked out. And I only say that because we're about to read Matthew 529. You ready? Perfect segue. Yeah, here we go. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. And throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Wow, these seem a little harsher all of a sudden, right? Yeah, got a little gory. Yeah, but just like the illustrations that Jesus was providing, you know, a little bit of further insight about the murder ethic, you know, where we were supposed to leave our sacrifice and settle with the accuser, here he's providing illustrations to give further insight into the adultery ethic. But again, I don't know, these feel a little more harsh, uh, controversial maybe even uh, to us. So. Here's the thing. 
Ready, Samuel? Should, based on what Jesus is saying, should every teenage boy who has ever struggled with a lustful thought be ripping their eyes out of their sockets? Um, we'd have a lot of blind adolescent boys. Yes, we would. (laughs) Yes, we would. All right, here's another. Should anyone who has ever engaged in some form of inappropriate touching be lopping off their hands? From what I know about Genesis 1 and what God thinks of his creation, I don't think he would want us to do that. Yeah. The funny thing is this is an easy answer. The answer is no, of course not. But... And, and you know what? We could even go further. Um, just, okay, side note, uh, ripping out eyes and lopping off hands. Okay, that would have been an even greater sin. So, you know, let's just put that out there. The point is that this is hyperbole and it's, it's, it's being used. It's supposed to enhance the effect of what's being said. We've talked about this before. In fact, we kind of joked about it, right? Mm-hmm. But Samuel, I'm telling you, I have known people personally that have been scared out of their wits over verses like this, wondering if they should be maiming themselves. Now, on one hand, I mean, you, you got to appreciate their heart. They just, they just want whatever Jesus says is right. And they're reading it. It's right there. What are they supposed to do with it? But they're, you know, they, they, they've missed out on any sort of true discipleship and anyone giving them any sort of real teaching instruction in the word to understand what's being said here. The real meaning behind all of this is that we should be vigilant in avoiding sin. And we've talked about it. It's better to do without desired things and and maybe even necessary things for now and gain eternal life than it is to satisfy yourself now and lose eternal life. So, illustratively, symbolically, it's better to do without a body part than it would be to lose the whole body. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Now, it does, however, say... H-E double hockey stick. Yeah, into hell. Okay. (laughs) Now, we talked about that a little bit before, so I guess we got to talk about it again. Okay, important thing number one. Again, the word that's being used here is the word Gehenna. This is super important. Now, as a reminder, Samuel, what are the two things that, that Gehenna is, is uh, representative of in this time and this place, this culture? Uh, I know that it represents one aspect of the grave of like Sheol, like the the not so great part of the grave. Yeah, like the punishment area, an, right? There's an actual physical, like literal spot in Jerusalem that was called Gehenna where it was the place where everybody's refuse went and it was set on fire and kind of smoldered there indefinitely yeah. and a lot of poor people lived around that area too yeah so it's the big trash dump and it's the punishment area in the grave and so it's important we're speaking of gehenna and like in this context it's the place of punishment right it's that one of the two and and it's that time between death 
and resurrection. This is, this is just like the guy who says, you fool. And this, this is the thinking. This is the language that's used in this day, this time, this place. And I'm just going to say it. There was no idea. There was no concept of a place of eternal punishment at this time, in this place with these people. It just didn't exist. Now think about that. If it didn't exist in the thinking at all, and we have zero evidence of it in any of the writings of any anything, well, if, if that's what Jesus was talking about, he'd be talking about something completely new and different, or, or you know, assuming it was Jesus talking, could have been Matthew writing, whatever. You get my point. Well, it would have been really, really appropriate and helpful to explain what that even is or what it was, rather than just, you know, start talking about it as if people should magically understand. And so, I'm of course suggesting this isn't something new. This is about the thing that they know about. When they see, you know, or hear something about being thrown into hell, they're thinking about the punishment part of the grave. Now, I've said all that. It does actually say that it's the body that would be thrown into hell or the body that's going to go into hell. And so here I just said all this stuff and I'm talking about the time between death and resurrection and disembodied spirits and people are going, Paul, you're not thinking clearly. Well, that is an understandable confusion. I mean, the text, I mean, it it does. It's specifically talking about the body, not a disembodied spirit. So here's the thing. These illustrations, they are just by their very nature, they are about parts of the physical body. We're talking about eyes and plucking them out and hands, cutting them off. And so to follow that, you're naturally going to talk about the whole body entering into some form of punishment, right? I mean, it would sound kind of silly to say, hey, if your eye offends thee, you know, uh, pluck it out. Otherwise, your disembodied spirit will be thrown. <laughs> it just it doesn't come out right, right? So here's the thing. We're in the middle of this, this, this hyperbolic illustration. And, and what we would be trying to do is to take just this one little bit, literally. And if we did, I mean, what would we even be talking about? Well, the only other option we have in scripture would be something like the lake of fire that we read about in Revelation. And this would then be talking about final judgment. But Samuel, right here, right, the Sermon on the Mount. This is how you live, you know, uh, seeking the kingdom. This is how your righteousness can exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. So right in the middle of all this, is Jesus really trying to make the point that anger and lust must be stripped from your life or you're going to go to an eternal hell? Which, by the way, nobody's ever heard of this concept at this time. Does that make sense? It seems pretty scatterbrained. Yeah, it, it just, it doesn't fit. He's, he's in the middle of trying to show you Torah. He wants your righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. So why would he be bringing up this new thing that just doesn't fit? It's very, very weird. He wants you to enter the kingdom. And of course, yeah, he wants you to do away with even anger and even lust but he's not doing it like, 
man, you better get it right or final judgment for you, right? This is all preparing for the kingdom, which, by the way, is way before that final judgment. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just doesn't fit for me. Hey, guess what? Another side note. <laughs> there were people in this day and age, uh, remember how we've talked about mystics or we look at mystical views? These mm-hmm. were ones who wanted to, they wanted to understand things that weren't explicit. They wanted to understand things that you had to really search and dig and deep, dig deep to find out. Well, they were curious about final punishment. And like we see uh, John in Revelation, when he's talking about the lake of fire, that he was, uh, John was mystical, I think, uh, in, in many, many ways. But even in this, when you talk about the lake of fire, you're, you're going back, you're, the mystics, what they thought at this time, none of that was viewed as an eternal punishment either. For humans, what they were expecting was something more like destruction or cessation or annihilation. For humans, and this is, this is a fine point, but it's important that you hear it. It was the result that was final and eternal, meaning there was no possibility of change. So if you are destroyed or you cease to be or you're annihilated, you will forever and always be destroyed and annihilated. You, get, you see what I'm saying? It's the result that's final. It's not the punishment itself that is eternal. And then, of course, you could run to Revelation, look at chapter 20, verse 10, and you could see you get a slightly different story for the devil, the beast, the false prophet, that kind of thing. But that's, it wasn't including the humans. But I'm just saying, this this is the thinking that they had at that time. It's important to hear. Yeah, that's a lot to swallow and to wrestle. I know that um, pretty much exclusively Jesus is going to be the only person in the New Testament that's going to be mentioning that word hell, other than I think maybe there's one reference of his brother James in his book. So I think I'm going to just give some space. I'm not going to respond just so that people can chew on it because I know that we're going to come back to it more. Uh, yeah. Jesus going is going to, to bring it up. up. We can continue to build on it. Yeah. Yeah. It really goes against whatever the the common modern thinking is everybody's got this vision in their head heaven it's it's outside of creation and i'm a floaty wispy spirit thing and hell is eternal and you know there's the guy with the horns and i'm just just suffering and it's, and it's all eternal everything's eternal and all i'm saying is they didn't have any thoughts like that they didn't have any understanding like that and so when we're reading what Jesus is saying, we've, not, we've got to learn to not import our modern thinking back onto what was written there. Yeah, and I will just throw this one part in there as someone who's learned this new Jewish interpretation of final judgment and stuff. It's allowed me to see God as continuing to uphold his nature as a good and a perfect judge, you know, righting wrongs, making sure that evil is vanquished, but then at the same time executing that in such a way where there's a mercy involved. Yeah. And not and not done in such a way where it comes across as capricious or cruel or Yeah. Um like 
you know, kid with a magnifying glance, magnifying glass <laughs> over an anthill kind of cruel. Like, yeah, I don't know. I know. I don't know if that makes sense to the listeners, but I just think from the messianic viewpoint, God can still be a judge, but he can do it in a merciful way that like yeah. isn't like degrading the creation that he made in the first place by how he executes that judgment. So anyways, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, it's very challenging, but we're going to keep talking about it. You know, and I, we mentioned this before we even started doing the recording. It's like, you know what? We we can't uh, sidestep. We can't hide. We can't dodge. We just got to, we got to talk about this stuff. And, you know, we'll do it as much as we need to, given the text that we're looking at. So, mm-hmm. all right, let's do some more text. What do we got? Matthew five thirty one says this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife... Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. All right, Samuel, I'm about to become as popular as a turd in a punch bowl. You ready? Ooh, let's do it. Here we go. Point number one. And we you just got to hear this. God granted divorce. You can go right back there to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. You can read it. It's right there. God also hates divorce. You can go right back to the book of Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. You can read it. You've probably read it before. You know what I'm talking about. And we also know that even though he hates it, he granted it. And we know why. It was because of the hardness of man's heart. And that's going to be right here in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. Okay? So all of these things are on the table. And now you have this, where Jesus is, and I don't know if you want to say he's allowing or he's endorsing or something, divorce in cases of sexual immorality. And and that that phrase sexual immorality that's the word fornication so it's kind of a broad category of sexual sin as opposed to something very specific like adultery or something, right? So sexual immorality, it's a broad category. So God's plan was that marriage would result in a faithful, loyal union that even transcended the physical, whereby the two would become one. There would be an intimate knowing of one another. And even more, that this would be the image by which we would understand our relationship with God himself. This was a great thing. But now, fornication, the sexual immorality, generally... That's a difficult to overcome injury of that union. So, even here by Jesus' words, divorce becomes a viable option. But, so you can understand a little more of the context, Jesus is, he, he's, he's in a sense, he's re-narrowing what legitimate divorce might be. See, at this time, the standards, at least for some, had become so lenient that it would be like the modern-day equivalent of, uh, she burned the toast, I'm divorcing her. 
which is ridiculous, right? But we'll talk about more as we go. So Jesus is playing this game of trying to re-narrow what was even acceptable. And we have to say, this is so important to people here, divorce is rough. Divorce deeply wounds. And and you might even say, we'll kind of personify divorce for a second, it's as if divorce is attempting to devastate one of God's little precious ones, or, or two of them maybe, right? Depending on how it goes, right? Divorce uh, endeavors to steal and kill and destroy, which is, I mean, you know, if we could steal that phrase, you know that's meant for something else. The thing is, we should hate it too. Just because it might be allowed in some limited circumstances does not mean that we should be okay with it. Now, I'm going to go ahead and get transparent for a second. I, about 30 years ago, went through a divorce. Wouldn't recommend it. It's an awful thing. Now, at the same time, I've had an awesome marriage a second time around. So there is... Uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, redemption or, 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 or something possible in all of that. But we shouldn't be okay with it. It should remain a gut-wrenching last resort. But we also should not become so rigidly against divorce that we actually end up causing more harm than good. I, okay, another question for you, Samuel. In this verse, Jesus is talking about sexual immorality. He's saying, all right, yeah, you know, you shouldn't divorce except for that. But I got to ask, do you think that sexual immorality is like forever and always the complete and exhaustive list for the valid reasons that one could possibly get a divorce? I wouldn't think so. Well, I mean, if you read this scripture... You might walk away with that thinking, but here's an easy one. What about abuse? What about when you got with some dude and he's just punching his wife in the face for fun or when he gets drunk or fill in the blank, right? Really? Do you think that, that the better answer is, oh, no, 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 no. God hates divorce. You stay there unless he, you know, commits some sort of sexual immorality. But he's beating me up. I'm like losing body parts. I mean, you know what I'm saying? The thing is, sin in humanity brings injustice and pain and suffering. Well, the last thing that we should be doing is the same thing while we're trying to pursue righteousness. That's crazy. That actually sounds a lot more like something the Pharisees might do. Not on purpose, but that's what they were doing, right? So all I'm saying is you could say that in some extreme circumstances that divorce is actually okay, possibly even the lesser of two evils, if you know what I'm saying. But at the same time, we should never be okay with divorce. It's just got to be a last resort, right? Yeah. Especially in the secular society that we live in, where it's ironic with you saying that in Jewish culture at that time, how lenient yeah. the conditions were to divorce, how lenient they were on divorce. It's almost like that's being replayed currently in our world today with 
you know, 50% of married couples will result in a divorce. So like it should be, especially if people are claiming to be people of God, like we should be doing everything that we can to try to stand against that because it's so common. Yeah. Yeah, that all, it comes from, uh, there were two great rabbis, you know, just, just say around the time when Jesus was, right? A little bit before. Hillel and Shammai. And what's hilarious is Shammai was the one who was always strict about everything, and Hillel was the one who was always, you know, nicer about everything. And a whole bunch of the time, like vast majority of the time, Jesus is in agreement with Hillel, the nice guy. But in this particular case, Hillel was the one who was like, yeah, you can divorce her if she burned your toast. Shammai was the one going, uh, no, you got to stay except for, you know, this very special case here or there. And, and in this one case, Jesus switches and he's, you know, like on Shammai's side, if you want to say it that way. I don't know. It's just funny, funny picture. Uh, so, uh, okay. Uh, more questions though, Samuel. Uh, we've gone through a few of these now. Uh, and it, it's just like trying to get ourselves grounded. Is the angry person really a murderer, Samuel? Technically, no. No. Is the lustful person really an adulterer? Mm-mm. Is the divorced person really committing adultery? Again, no. No. And I'm going to say it. The answer should now actually be obvious to all of us. No, it's just no. Jesus is not suggesting any kind of actual legal changes, whether it's to, you know, what we think of as the Torah. Well, see, there's really no difference, and, and I guess people need to see that better. He's not talking about legal changes, which means he's not talking about changing the Torah, which means he's not talking about the way things are handled in the courts of law. All of these things are just better interpretation of Torah. It's real intent, it's real goal, it's real purpose. They're attempts to raise the personal, moral, and ethical standard to better match God's original intent, the true Torah. And how cool is it that he was doing that while at the same time like addressing the modern culture that was going on at that time and using the Torah to yeah. address the things that were in play that were unhealthy between, you know, human to human interactions. Like people yep. treat Jesus's words and the scriptures as so archaic, but I mean, you just showed two examples with the Jesus, like kind of calling out the men with the definition of uh, adultery. And then right. this aspect of, you know, redefining the grounds for divorce uh, with married couples just makes me think like how would Jesus respond today with all of the current issues that are going on in our world like you know many people would think maybe Jesus would be silent but it kind of seems like here that Jesus might actually have an opinion about some of this stuff oh I bet he would I bet he would I would love it to hear it that would be the greatest We'll see it. Maybe we'll see it at the kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, you know, this next one, I actually think we can run through it fairly quick. So I think let's, let's do it before we end. Uh, it starts in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. It says this. 
Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. All right. Well, at least this one isn't as harsh and tough as some of the others. So let's look at that. Number one, where does this come from? This is back in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12, or you could look in Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, or Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 21, or Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. It's all over the place. But you will see in all of these references that the issues at hand are two things. One, you're trying to use God's name to kind of guarantee truthfulness or honesty or something like that. And the second thing is uh, vowing to the Lord, and that would be, you know, promising him some kind of behavior or money or animals or something like that, right? It's a big deal because to be untruthful or dishonest or failing to fulfill the vow results in some pretty bad stuff. You profane God's name, that's a no-no, and you are guilty of sin which is hilarious because it's an unforced error. You put this law on yourself. It wasn't one that God gave to you, right? And so ultimately, that kind of makes you a fool, foolish anyway. But Jesus offers a very simple solution. Don't swear by God or make vows. The law already had enough do's and don'ts. Why would you voluntarily add more to yourself through vows and pledges? If you don't keep them or do them, it's like breaking the law. It's crazy. Amazingly. And Sam, sometimes you have to go look at these things to make sure it's true. The Torah never requires a man to make an oath. Wow. And Jesus wasn't even saying anything new. A whole bunch of other teachers, we've got writings before and during his time, said the exact same thing. It's even in Ecclesiastes already. And <laughs> all right. You know, Daniel Lancaster's like my fave. I'm going to have to meet him someday. But he makes this little joke. He says that uh, this is talking about, um, you know, don't, don't swear. Don't just, just don't make any vows. And he says that Josephus writes that the Essene community swore off swearing altogether. <laughs> <laughs> we need a donuts for that. I know. He's good. Yeah. Uh, uh, but one of the things inside here. Uh, you know, how, remember how he talks about, you know, don't swear by heaven or the throne of God or whatever, all these things. It was popular to make oaths and vows. I don't know why, but the, whatever. That's what they did. And it was also popular to not use God's name directly. And so this <laughs> had this wonderful little twofold purpose. On one hand, they didn't have to say the name that shouldn't be spoken. So that was, you know, that was always a bonus. But then number two, because they didn't actually say his name, it provided a little wiggle room to get out of the vow or the oath, since they didn't technically swear by God. 
it wasn't technically binding. What? Yeah, I know. It's cheesy, right? But by saying things like heaven or earth or Jerusalem, these were all circumlocutions. Everybody knew that they meant God when you were just, you know, being respectful in your speech. But Jesus is, you know, he's letting them know, hey, guess what? God knew what you meant too. And there is no wiggle room. The oath was the oath. The vow was the vow. God is going to hold you to it. And then Jesus also adds a little bit about swearing by your by your own head because, okay, number one, it's useless. You have no actual authority or power or, you know, at least compared to God, whatever. And another little uh, bit of trickery, traditionally, oaths that you made on your own life, they could be retracted. So they, they were just worthless, right? Anyway, all of this, the whole point of all this is just to say, just be a person of character. A simple yes or no from a person of character is enough. The need to go beyond this comes from a bad place, bad intentions, pride, etc., whatever. So just, just stop it. Just don't do it. Now, Paul, I actually have a... I'm going to fail our listeners, and it's going to cause us to go a little bit longer than what you had said before we started this section. But I have a question okay. that is kind of related to this. I hope it doesn't cause us to go off on a rabbit train. But you painted very well what Jewish culture and what specifically Jesus is saying here about how we should tread carefully with making vows to the Lord. Um, and when I'm thinking about people trying to emulate God on earth and how they interact with one another, the question I have, and I'm not saying this because I disagree with it, I know how important these are, but I really am just curious, why is it that in, especially in Christian weddings, that a husband and a wife make vows to one another um, and the reason it, I'm asking is like, if I'm being honest with myself and the vows that I said to my wife, like, I mean, tomorrow is our anniversary. And like, I can think of times where I have let her down as a sinful human being. And like you said here, like, you know, someone who is untruthful or dishonest, like the things that they do, they profane God's name mm-hmm. and that they are guilty of sin. So in some ways, like with, how I have let my wife down and the vows that I said to her, I kind of profaned her name and I was a gu- I'm guilty of sin before her. So right. w- why in comparison do weddings, do the husband and wife just say yes, rather than having to attach the vows that have so much more weight to them? Like in this example right here that Jesus is kind of like putting a lot of caution to. Yeah. Well, boy, that is a super, super question. Um, couple of things that come to mind. Um, let's go back to these particular verses. They really are, they're, they're in, they're, they're more intended to be toward God. Now I know some of them we were talking about, you know, guaranteeing the truthfulness or honesty, you know, I swear by whatever. And it even used the example. of The other thing is, um. Oh boy, and and I don't even know how to say it. When you are deciding to enter into marriage, when you are deciding to uh, offer 
And also, I mean, think about this. You're entering into a contract of sorts. You've got the ketubah, and that's not a musical instrument for those who are wondering. And and these are promises that you are making. They They are the vows, so to speak. And remember that God married Israel, in a sense, in that situation on Sinai. And I guess, to be fair, well, boy, I don't know. I, I don't I love this question because it's really making my mind work so hard about what that is because I definitely recognize. Yeah, it's tough. It's almost like I'm not saying that we should change the name of that part of a ceremony in a wedding from vows to the promises, the covenantal promises given between a husband and a wife, but it's part of me wishes that it could it could be done in such a way. Yeah. Well, you know what, though? Actually, you have made a really, really good point. I think you've answered your own question. Did God say, do not enter into any covenants? No. 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 People did that all the time. And so, I think maybe, in the simplest sense, that's the best answer. You're not really, you know, we, modern times, we're using the word vow, but marriage was a covenant. You were entering into a covenant. Everybody had... These are the things that I will do. These are the things that you will do. I mean, that was covenant. So I think maybe the the best thing to do is look at this and go, well, okay, but covenants are very different than oaths and vows, right? So I think that, yeah, I'll just edit a whole bunch of my stuff out and uh, we'll put your answer in there. (laughs) We got to keep some of the pauses, though, so that we can emulate the toughness of the question. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it. Hey, this is Paul kind of breaking in during editing. And uh, though I've mercifully saved you from more than five minutes of us just rattling on about all this stuff, a thing that in the end you can see was a very easy question to answer. I wanted to point out what happened to us. We got so hung up on our modern usage, talking about the wedding vows and, and trying to figure out how to make that all work, And it took us a while to even recognize the fact that it didn't have anything to do with the scripture we were talking about. Though it's the same English word, there was simply no connection at all. And we ultimately kind of found our way to it. But I just wanted you to see it and hear it, even though I tried to make it a little bit silly. So you could see how anytime you are reading your Bible, studying your Bible, talking to people, trying to ask questions, answer questions, whatever, you can find yourself down this strange little rabbit hole, and it may take you a little bit to get out, but I just thought leaving a little bit of it in would be instructive for us all and show you how we can be just as goofy as anyone else. Oh man, you ready to get out of here? Yeah, I think we're uh, well done. Okie dokie. Thanks for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Please don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you're notified when our episodes release on Sundays at 7 p.m. so that you never miss an episode. We also would really appreciate it if you left a rating and a review on your podcasting app to let us know how this content is impacting your life. We're now pretty much available on all podcasting platforms, so please make sure you check us out on your electronic device. You can also visit our official website at www.okidokimos.com for more information, or you can listen online right there. Finally, 
We'd love to hear from you. Please send any comments or questions you have to the email address okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you next week.